Revelation 13 is where we're going to be tonight. Chapter 13. In our house, sometimes when it's rainy outside or Friday nights where we're just indoors and the kids stay up a little bit longer at night to get to sleep in on Saturday morning. But something that we like to do from time to time is play games, board games. I imagine many of you uh, do the same thing. Well, when I was a kid, my sisters and I, we used to love playing this game called Jenga. Are you familiar with Jenga? You know how Jenga, you remember it's the Tower of Blocks. Um, but basically, the game involves a tower of 54 blocks or so. And the way the game works, every player takes a turn removing a block. You kind of go around the circle. Um, when you remove the block, you then take that block and you put it back on top of the tower. And the objective is to keep the tower from toppling over. Now, it's inevitable that as the blocks are removed, the tower becomes more and more unstable. But I mean, I've played some of those games. It's amazing at how high you can get that tower and how that tower can be teeter-tottering back and forth and just one wrong move and man, the whole thing is obliterated. Eventually, it's a matter of time before the tower eventually falls. Well, I said that to simply say, in, in many ways, we as a society have really been playing a big game of Jenga. That's not just true of our society and our culture and our generation, but with each generation that passes, what we've done in Western civilization is remove one block at a time. Uh, in the 18th century, there were ideas that came out of the Enlightenment period that took away uh, belief in the supernatural. In the Enlightenment period, there were people who came along and said, well, all that really you see with your eyes, the, the existence of humanity, the world, all of that owes its existence to naturalistic explanations. You had Darwin and, uh, you know, his theories of evolution and all of that that came along. Well, that gave way to the Industrial Revolution, and during the Industrial Revolution, we really became enamored with the works of our own hands. Machinery and factories and all such as that, uh, productivity, uh, profit became king. And then you had the sexual revolution that really came to prominence during the midpoint of the last century or so, and it gave rise to sort of this normalization of sexual sin of every imaginable sort. And so instead of building on a solid foundation, what we've done as a society is we've removed blocks from the fabric of society one block at a time. And when you do that, it's only a matter of time before civilization collapses into a chaotic mess. And I think that's one of the fears that we have when we look at the shape of things today. We wonder what is it that's still holding together the fabric of our society when so many blocks have been removed, we sense that the tower is, 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 is shifting. And so in the wake of this avalanche of crises that we've experienced, and in particular, I'm talking about the last couple of years, uh, you have heard these increased calls for a new world order. Any of you ever heard anybody talking like that? Have you read any articles or you've seen headlines? I'm sure you have. July of 2020, Bloomberg Magazine 
said, um, a new world order for the coronavirus era is emerging. And the opening paragraph of that magazine said, halfway into a year dominated by a pandemic, governments of the world are confronting a health crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis of institutional legitimacy, all at a time of heightening geopolitical rivalry. An analogy for what comes next is the pre-war period of the 1930s. Whatever's happening, we're on the edge of some kind of gathering storm. It just is we don't know what that storm will look like or how it will break upon us. It's interesting that two years ago they were comparing the state of affairs geopolitically like the 1930s. You think of Europe in the 1930s. You, you, had a, you had a guy with a funny little mustache coming into prominence in Germany who was advocating the German cause and rallying Germany around him. And before you know it, you had Hitler who is invading Poland in 1939, upending the world order, upending Europe, plunging Europe into World War II. And of course, all of that was in the wake of World War I. Now, you know, here's the thing. Peace is always affected in the pursuit of power. And I think we've seen that vividly illustrated just this last week, haven't we? The world of man wants peace, but at the same time, it also wants power. And those who are often in pursuit of the power claim to do so in the name of peace. And it's a vicious cycle, and it repeats itself. History has a way of repeating itself. Lust for power often overrules peace in man's depraved heart. And one day, this lust for power is going to be embodied in a man whom the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. Or as John describes him and his empire here in Revelation 13, he is a beast, Someone who will promise peace, but his lust for power will be such that it will drag the whole world into the chaos of war. And so that's where we find ourselves here in Revelation chapter 13. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed with where we were last week, uh, we saw in chapter 12 that really the story of humanity has been a story of kingdoms in conflict And interestingly enough, we went home last Wednesday night. If you stayed up late enough, you saw the breaking news that the Russian military had invaded Ukraine. And so now, what we've seen uh, this last week, war has broken out on the European continent, the likes of which has not been seen since World War II. And so we're reminded in these chapters here in Revelation that the reason for earthly conflict, ultimately it's because of a conflict between light and darkness. And I think that was the the big point that we, we came away with from Revelation chapter 12. And yet there's a silver lining to these ominous clouds because no matter how bad things may get in the world around us, no matter the circumstances, uh, we can be full of joy in knowledge of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. He told his disciples, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In the world, 
You're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. But you can be of good cheer. You can be confident in life, Jesus said, because I've overcome the world. So you, you're, you're watching the news. You're reading the headlines. At times you may fear, um, uh, feel fear. You may be scared, fearful for your children, fearful for your grandchildren, especially when threats of war dominate the news cycle. But it's all a reminder that there's a dragon lurking in the shadows, and the Scripture tells us of his strategy for the last days. We're introduced to the dragon in chapter 12, but his strategy uh, to bring about destruction and chaos, uh, we see this in chapter 13. So let's read. I want to read beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read only through verse 10 tonight, and that's where we'll stop. So John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I want to speak tonight from this subject, the beast from the sea. In actuality, Revelation 13 tells us about two beasts. The first beast is this beast described in these verses that we've read. The second beast is described beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And together, these two beasts comprise the empire of the Antichrist in the last days. Now, we'll not get into that second beast tonight. We'll, we'll save him for later. But tonight, I really want us to focus in on this beast which John sees rise up out of the sea. And really, together, these two beasts will be the most persuasive, powerful, and influential of all political, religious figures in history. And and what the dragon will attempt to do through these two beastly figures uh, will be to unite the world of humanity in its rebellion against the Creator. In a very real sense, what you see in Revelation 12 and 13 is an unholy trinity. Remember, I've told you that the devil, he's not creative, he's a counterfeit. 
And he doesn't have a creative mind. The only thing he can do is counterfeit what God has already created and who God is. The, uh, Luther said that uh, Satan is the ape of God. All he wants to do is mimic God. Remember, that's why he failed to begin with. He wanted to be like the Most High. So what you see in Revelation 12 is really an unholy trinity. If the holy trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Satan's counterfeit of this in the last days uh, is the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Or to say it another way, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon, the antichrist, and the antichrist false prophet. This is an unholy trinity. And through this unholy trinity, Satan is going to promise the world a false sense of salvation. The Antichrist and his system will be set up as really a rival kingdom and the rival Christ. And, and an unbelieving world is going to be enamored with this system and with the man who really is going to sit at the head of this system. Now, it's important by way of introduction, you know that we're not just making this up, we're not just uh, creating this in view of the circumstances that are happening in our world, because since the earliest days of Christianity, faithful believers have expected the coming of an evil man who is himself the embodiment of anti-Christian ideas. And he is referred to as the Antichrist by the Apostle John in his epistles. John's not the only person who describes him. There are actually several places throughout Scripture that describe the Antichrist and what the Antichrist agenda will involve, uh, not the least of which is the book of Daniel. So much about Antichrist comes from certain chapters in Daniel. The Apostle Paul has something to say about this figure in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, Jesus describes him in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, as the abomination which causes desolation. And that's a reference from Daniel 9. So this beast from the sea, what this is being described in this passage in very picturesque language is really the Antichrist, and, and it's both a man and a system that the man embodies. Okay, so we'll unpack that for just a little bit tonight. Uh, the first thing I want to really call your attention to is the description that's given of this beast. Now, pay close attention to his description there in um, uh, verses 1 and 2. John, he, by the way, all of this is uh, parenthetical information. Remember, we're kind of in this parentheses between the seventh trumpet and then the seven bold judgments which come later on in chapters 15, chapter 16 in particular. And so what John is doing here, the seventh trumpet has announced the kingdom of Christ uh, the coming of Christ, the culmination of God's judgment, the wrath of God uh, contained in the bold judgments to come. But then you get to chapter 12, John goes back to describe really the source of conflict. Why is it that man's world seems to be kingdoms in conflict? Well, it's because of the dragon. And it's because the dragon has pulled humanity, unbelieving humanity into rebellion against God. And so you get into chapter 13, and so this is still parenthetical information here. John is filling in the details. And so he's described this long war against God that will manifest itself in the final tribulation period. 
The dragon who hates the woman and her child sets out to destroy both she and her offspring. We saw how the woman is symbolic of Israel. The male child that she has given birth to, this is symbolic of the Messiah. Jesus Christ, who's ascended to heaven. And the dragon wanted to keep that woman really from, from giving birth. That was her, the fact that she gave birth to the male child who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. How the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. And the dragon is the serpent who wants to stop that evangelistic promise from coming true. But that's the whole story of the Bible. So again, you'll notice in, in chapter 12, verse 3, the way that the dragon is described, he's described as having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. There's a reason that he's described that way because it's referenced to the way that Satan will mount his attack against God's people in the last days. How often has Satan attacked the people of God uh, throughout the, hi the history? How is it that he's tried to keep the kingdom of God from coming to pass? It's through influencing the sinful kingdoms of man. Worldly empires of man. Empires, the head of which sit sinful men enamored with power, drunk on power, who often use that power to persecute the people of God. Which, by the way, you know what has given rise to the, the whole freedom movement that is true of the American Revolution and and what America has embodied for years. You know what, the ideas that gave birth to the American Revolution were Christian ideas. Ideas that gave rise to the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln. And the whole abolitionist movement, you know, the efforts of men like William Wilberforce and others to, to do away with slavery. You know those were Christian ideas? And so what is it, though, that the enemy hates? He hates, he hates the gospel. He hates liberty. He, he, hates, he hates God. And so he's going to try to blind humanity and keep humanity in blindness and darkness. And, and oftentimes he'll, he'll work out his sinister schemes through the fallen kingdoms of man to try to tamp down, destroy God's people. You see this all throughout Scripture, and you see it throughout church history. And it's going to come to a head in the last days through the empire of Antichrist. And so, again, this is the way that the dragon is going to mount his attack against God's people in the last days. It's going to involve this beast that rises from the sea. Now, that word sea there in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, uh, it's, it's a word, whenever it's used in Revelation symbolically, it, it's not referring to a literal body of water, but to the restless nations of earth. Now, John sees the sea. Again, all of this is picturesque language. Keep that in mind. But there are literal realities that this symbolic language points us to. And so the sea, this is, this is symbolic language of the nations and specifically the Gentile nations. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you get to chapter 17 and we're, we're told specifically that the sea is really the sea of humanity. So you've got this beast that emerges from the sea described as having 10 horns, seven heads, 10 diadems on its horns. 
And John describes this beast in verse 2 by saying that it was like a leopard, and its feet were like that of a bear. Its mouth was like that of a lion. And so really, you've got this composite picture that's just strange, and, and I think I've got a picture of it there on the screen behind me. You can imagine to see this, it's just a, it's a fearsome sight. Certainly, it's not a literal creature that we can identify. <laughs> I've not seen one of these out in the wild. I believe if I have, I think I'd just be, I think I'd die on the spot, just to be honest, I really do. But this is a symbolic picture that's pointing us to something deeper. And so this, this composite picture, this is drawn from specific images, if you remember from the book of Daniel. You remember from our study of the book of Daniel, if you were here for that, Daniel was given the privilege much in the same way that the Apostle John is given the privilege here in Revelation of pulling back the curtain of human history in which he's given a glimpse of the future coming of God's kingdom. So John describes the same thing that the prophet Daniel was shown in Daniel chapter 7 where he was given a vision of four beasts. And so to understand what's being described here in Revelation 13, why don't we go back to that passage for just a moment, Daniel chapter 7. Actually, two passages we're going to look at, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, but first, Daniel 7. Now, the content of... The vision that Daniel was given is found in really the first 14 verses of the chapter. And then you get to verse 15 through the rest of the chapter, there's an explanation or an interpretation of the vision. But in his dream, Daniel tells us there as chapter 7 begins that uh, he saw in his vision by night, verse 2, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Again, the, the sea is picturesque of the world of humanity, okay? So keep that in mind. Same kind of ideas here that we see in Revelation 13. But he sees four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I'll stop there. I would imagine if I had a dream like that, I would woke up in a cold sweat. 
right? So, so in this dream, Daniel sees four beasts emerge from the sea. And uh, he's told in, down in verse 17 that these four beasts are symbolic of four kings or kingdoms which will arise out of the sea of humanity. The first beast was like a lion with wings of an eagle. Uh, the second was like a bear raised up on one side. The third, like a leopard with four wings and four heads. Now, what you should pay close attention to that those same animals that are described, you know, the lion, the leopard, the bear, it's the same description that John gives of the beast that he sees emerge from the sea in Revelation 13. That's the fourth beast. Daniel says that this fourth beast, he's different from the others. It's described as being terrifying, dreadful, strong, great iron teeth. It devoured, it broke in pieces, it trampled what was left with its feet. And yet it was also different in that it had 10 horns. And as Daniel's considering those horns, there's another horn that came up, which he described as being a little horn, before which three of the others were plucked up by the roots. So the idea is you've got these 10 horns, they're representative of kings, and, and this little horn becomes a prominent horn who we know as being as the Antichrist. The little horn had eyes like a man, had a mouth that spoke great things. So these four symbols, these four beasts that Daniel sees in his dream in chapter 7, these correspond to an earlier dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 of Daniel, which involved this colossus. We've talked about this a lot, but that massive statue made up of different types of metals. You had the head of gold and uh, the, the uh, arms of silver, uh, you had the uh, belly and thigh, bronze. You had the legs of iron. These represented four successive empires that dominated the nation of Israel in the ancient world. Now, inevitably, someone says, okay, well, when I think about world empires, you know, why, why, is, uh, why is Genghis Khan and his empire not mentioned? Uh, what about the Ottoman Turks or what about... Um, Oh, we could just go through history. We could talk about several other empires. We could talk about uh, empires on the South American continent. You know, why is it specifically these kingdoms that are being described? Well, because, listen, each of these kingdoms were important because each of these kingdoms dominated the land of Israel. Each of these succession of powers exercised control over the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's the apple of God's eye. It's the navel of the world. As far as biblical prophecy is concerned, Jerusalem and Israel is the epicenter. So you need to understand that. So this head of gold, this is Babylon. It was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar that carried the Jews away into captivity in 586 B.C. His kingdom fell to the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was overtaken by the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. His empire was divided out among his four generals. That corresponds with chapter 7, the leopard, the four wings. Greece and the empire of Greece was eventually consumed by Rome, hence the iron legs of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. 
Hence the iron teeth of the fourth beast that Daniel describes. And yet there's something different about the iron legs because in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the feet, the toes were iron, but they were made up of clay also. There was, there was an iron-clay mixture, and there were ten toes. And these ten toes correspond with the ten horns of the fourth beast in Daniel 7. So what you see then is some future version of a revived Roman empire in the last days. Some type of a revived uh, empire of Rome that will dominate the world in the last days. Now understand this. This is, this is so important that you get this. Jerusalem is the epicenter. Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye. Each of these successive kingdoms and empires dominate Jerusalem and dominate the Jews during the time of their kingdoms. Okay, but Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was a stone, you know, cut out of a mountain, but not out of, but not made of human hands. This is Daniel chapter two. He sees this stone strike the image at the feet and Daniel, when he interprets that dream in chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar, he says that this is symbolic of the kingdom of God, the Messiah's kingdom that will be established in the last days, that will destroy this final empire. Same thing happens in chapter 7. I, I stopped reading uh, at, at, at verse 8, but if you go on in chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel sees something remarkable happen. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the, the horn was speaking, the little horn. He's the symbolic head of this final beast kingdom. It's the Antichrist. As I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, in Daniel 7, that word kingdom, actually it's used 12 times from verse 14 all the way through verse 28, the end of the chapter. So the emphasis of the chapter is the coming kingdom of the Son of Man, which will replace all other kingdoms. All of man's beastly kingdoms represented in this final, I don't know, amalgamation or conglomerate type kingdom that's made up of, of, of so many composite parts of the kingdoms which were before it. It's going to be destroyed and replaced by the kingdom of the Messiah when he returns. That's what Daniel is being shown here. That's what Revelation is all about. 
Again, what's the seventh trumpet? What, what is it that's really given way to these, uh, these visions that John has given in Revelation 12, Revelation 13? It's the seventh trumpet judgment. What did the seventh trumpet announce? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's what Daniel was shown. It's the prophetic hope of the Old Testament. It's the question that the disciples asked Jesus just before he ascended. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, that ain't none of your business. <laughs> he didn't rebuke them for the question. He redirected their focus. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to take this gospel into all the world. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to make disciples. That I want, that's what I want you to do. And then he ascends into heaven. And those disciples are told, you know what? This same, why are you standing around looking into heaven, guys? You, you heard what he said. This same Jesus who was taken up from you, he's going to return the same way you saw him disappear. He's going to appear. Now get busy. And when he comes, listen, the state of the world, when he comes, the world will be under the delusion of the dragon and the Antichrist, the beastly kingdom, the final empire of the beast, and it's doomed for destruction. So, this fourth beast, by the way, on the back of your page, let me just kind of draw your attention. I give you just a little bit of the chart. If you want to see a comparison of Revelation 13 with Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, Daniel's vision in chapter 7, if you want to see how that corresponds with the vision that John has shown in chapter 13, there you have it. The statue of the, the, the head of gold in Daniel 2, uh, this, this was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The beast of Daniel 7, described being like a lion, the wings of an eagle. The meaning in Daniel, this was the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. How does that correspond with chapter 13? Well, the beast in chapter 13 of Revelation is said to have a mouth like a lion. What's the meaning of that? Well, like it, it will be like Babylon in its effort to unify culture, religion, and government. Let me ask you a question. Do you see that kind of spirit at work in our world today? The spirit in which it wants to unify culture and unify religion and government. Listen to me. This is serious business, I'm telling you. It's what's going on in our world. We've witnessed just this last week, we've witnessed something that has galvanized Europe unlike anything else before it. All of those Western-style democracies... Which, by the way, what this is, what you see happening in the world right now, it's really, it's, it's really a battle between the remnants of the eastern part of the Roman Empire and the western part of the Roman Empire. Vladimir Putin and, and so many Russian leaders before him saw themselves as being the inheritors of the eastern part of the empire known as the Byzantine Empire. Ivan the Terrible you know, who saw himself as being basically, a, you know, the inheritor of, of the Roman Empire, the eastern version of the Roman Empire there in Moscow. And then what you have with the western part of the empire, which crumbled before the eastern part of the empire, 
all of the other Western-style democracies, republics that you see, all of this came out of the Roman Empire, you see. And so what you see happening now, you see all of these Western-style democracies that are banding together. Think about the UN. Think about the European Union, whose charter was called the Treaty of Rome, by the way. Now, the only thing different about the European Union, the European Union doesn't have a military. They never thought they would need one until this week. And now, now, listen to how many in Europe are now calling for a European Union military. Combined forces of all of those European Union countries. Folks, I'm telling you, we're living in some incredible times. But then the statue of Daniel 2, uh, as far as the chest and the arms of silver, how does that correspond with Daniel 7? Well, Daniel 7 talked about the bear with three ribs in its mouth. The meaning, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. The beast of Revelation 13 is described as having feet like a bear. The meaning in Revelation, just like the Medes and the Persians, it devours its opponents. So what you see, this final world kingdom that, that John is describing in Revelation 13, uh, it, it, it sort of has qualities of all of those other world empires before it that preceded it. The torso and thighs of bronze from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 of Daniel. How does that correspond with chapter 7? Chapter 7 talks about a leopard with four heads and four wings. The meaning in Daniel, this was the Greek empire under Alexander and his four generals. The beast of Revelation 13 is described as being like a leopard. And the meaning is that like Greece, it rapidly unifies the world. It's something that happens fast in the last days. The rate of change that we're witnessing in our time, men and women, it's almost scary at times when you think about it. Many of you who are much older than I am, you can talk about all of the change that you've witnessed in your lifetime, and you think about it, it's rapid change, isn't it? And now with technology, the rate of change is that much more rapid. And then the, the legs of iron and the feet and toes of iron and clay mixed together in Daniel 2. That corresponds with the monster with iron teeth in Daniel 7, with ten horns and an arrogant little horn. The meaning in Daniel, this is the Roman Empire, fragmented but restored, will be restored in the future. The beast of Revelation 13 is described as having seven heads and ten horns, one head mortally wounded but healed. The meaning in Revelation, just like Rome, it unites diverse nations under one banner, one leader who promises peace, but ultimately is going to bring war. Now, that's a lot there, isn't it? That's a lot being described when you think about this critter, this beast character in Revelation 13. Well, I don't have a whole lot more time. Let me just give you a couple things just for a couple of minutes quickly. We'll have to come back to this. I went a little longer than I anticipated. The identification of the beast is the second thing that we need to pay close attention to. Verse 3 says that one of its heads, John sees that it seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And as they did so, they worshiped the dragon ultimately because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? 
The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So again, the symbolism of this beast from the sea, the sea being figurative of humanity, this suggests that the future Antichrist and his kingdom will embody the sum total of world empires that have opposed God and his people throughout history. And he's going to be directly empowered by Satan, who is the puppet master pulling his strings. That word antichrist only appears five times in the Bible, and I've told you each of those are found in uh, the epistles of John. But antichrist, we tend to think of antichrist as someone who opposes Christ overtly, and that's true. But also true is this idea that it's someone who seeks to replace Christ in the lives of people. An idea which sets itself up as salvation or a savior and it's not the gospel, that's an antichrist, anti-Christian idea. And these anti-Christian ideas are so true of, of the world and, 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 and culture and, and all of this. So again, antichrist is both a spirit and a system and to someone who's going to embody evil. And from so many passages in the Bible, we're able to put together a rough sketch of his personality and his agenda. And I'm gonna give these to you all at once. But his personality, uh, Daniel 8 describes him as being a king of bold face, a king with fierce countenance or features. The idea is he's going to present himself in a haughty kind of a manner. John says that he's going to rail against God, speak blasphemous words against God and his name and against those in heaven. He'll set himself up as the supreme authority. By the way, all of that's in line with what Daniel was shown uh, in Daniel chapter seven. Daniel seven says that he'll speak words against the most high. Demonic power, Daniel 8, 24 says that his power will be great, but not by his own. It won't be his own power. John tells us in chapter 13 that it's the dragon who gives the beast its power and its throne. What was it that Satan tried to offer Jesus in the temptation narrative of Matthew chapter 4? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give all of these to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And so if they weren't his to give, I don't think he would have offered them. All of the corrosive, corrupted, temporary, short-lived kingdoms of this world, ultimately, Satan is behind those. And he's going to give this beast its authority in the last days. But that's even going to be by divine authority. Understand, the devil, he, hey, he's on a leash. Are you listening? He's God's devil. And, and he's only allowed to do certain things in, in the will of God as it serves ultimately divine purposes. But this is gonna be a charismatic kind of a leader who's going to have divine or have demonic power in his corner. He's going to be skilled in the art of deception. Daniel 8.25 says, by his cunning, he will make deceit prosper in his hand. You say, well, how could the world fall under such delusion? Well, hey, even today in our own political campaigns, it's amazing how people gravitate toward charismatic personalities. It's amazing how we just can be so enamored by charisma and totally 
care less about character. Hello? You give people a candidate who has an uncanny ability to enthrall people with rhetoric about some undefined future, and man, they'll follow him like sheep. We live in a personality-driven world. And that's not just true of the world, but folks, it's become true of so much of the church. Social media has made this phenomenon so much more pronounced. And this is the devil's way. That's how he's always operated. So you got this, this antichrist who's going to be marked by pride, but ultimately, again, there's a divine purpose here. This is, this is the way that history is going to conclude just before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns. Oh, I've got, let me leave you one last thing and I'll close. Oh. What about that fatal wound, Pastor? What in the world does that mean? John sees that this beast has a fatal wound or a mortal wound, but it's healed so that the whole world marvels as they follow the beast and then they give him his allegiance, their allegiance. Listen to Chuck Swindoll. The meaning of the healed fatal wound on one of the seven heads, this has been debated for centuries. Some have said that the wound refers metaphorically to the kingdom of the beast, that he will suffer some deadly political blow and survive. However, the Greek phrase translated as if it had been slain or mortal wound as it is in the ESV, this is the same phrase used to describe the Lamb of God, Jesus, whose death was clearly real and resulted in a literal bodily resurrection. And so this seems to indicate that the Antichrist of the future will attempt to mimic Christ's death and resurrection through his own deceptive injury and resuscitation. This is one more way that Satan is going to try to mimic God. He's not creative at all. He's a counterfeiter. He's a deceiver. He's a thief. He's a murderer. But he's so subtle in how he does it. Paul says that he transforms himself into an angel of light. And so something's going to happen, whether it be a, a, a political resurrection or whether it be a literal resurrection. There's some who actually believe that the Antichrist will survive some type of an assassination attempt or he'll die and there'll be some type of a literal resurrection. I don't know. But all I can know is this. I'm told that it's going to be a phony counterfeit and people are going to get caught up in the delusion according to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now just so you won't need counseling if you leave without getting all your blanks filled, let me give these to you. <laughs> And I'll come back to this next week. You know, we'll finish this first beast from the sea, then we'll talk about his propaganda machine, the false prophet. That's the second beast, which John sees arise from the earth. Now, this is just some practical application here, just for you to just kind of store away. How, how should we respond to this kind of a passage? Strange but how should we respond to it in a practical sense? I think when you think about issues, prophetic, anticipation, not speculation. Later in the chapter, you've got the mark of the beast that's going to be described. And we're told that it's the number of a man's name. And I can't tell you how many times people have tried to come up with some 
world leader and try to make it fit with the 666 and all. Listen, that's speculative. But anticipation is something that we should, we should live with. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Amen. And he's coming again. Amen. And then occupation, not distraction. It's easy for us to get distracted and sidelined and, and, and talk about all kinds of things and worry about the geopolitical situation in the world. And we ought to be actively involved as citizens in our own country. But folks, our occupation as ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God, it is a great commission occupation that God has given us. He wants us to be occupied with his mission, making disciples, pointing people to Jesus, shepherding our families, sharing our faith, and then ultimately, preparation, not procrastination. If this is describing the kingdoms of the world and what ultimately they're coming to, and it's going to be a sad demise, that means I had better live a prepared life and not procrastinate the most important decision of life. And that's to give my allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the reward is for the one who bows to him now. All of humanity is going to bow before him. But the reward is for the one who bows to him now. Let's stand for prayer tonight. I want to dismiss us in prayer. I've waited till the last minute to tell you that I've got something. I've only got 50 of these. So, well, I don't know. There might be a mad rush on these in a minute. But what this is, this is, a, this is a Revelation prophecy chart that was put together by Dr. David Jeremiah at Turning Point. I also have this digitally, you know. So, so let's, don't stampede to get this. I've got this digitally. If you email the office, we'll send it to you digitally. But I've, I've, got, I've got several copies of this. But essentially what it is, it's a timeline. You know, because so much of Revelation is back and forth. You know, we're dealing with chronological events and then we take some time away from those events and we see some parentheses information like chapter 12, chapter 13. Dr. David Jeremiah has done a really good job sort of breaking this down into some type of a timeline that you can kind of see in a chapter by chapter, section by section. So I've got some of these. I'll put a stack over here and I'll put a stack on this side of the platform. And if you just want to email us, we'll make sure we, we give you one. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we're thankful, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, we look about history and we look at what's going on, the global scene, and there's so much, Lord God, that we're concerned for. We pray tonight for the men and women of Ukraine. Lord, as Mark prayed earlier, Lord, for both sides of this terrible conflict. Think about Vladimir Putin, Lord. Uh, the scripture says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wishes. He is subject to you, O God. We pray your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, we live with prophetic hope and this encourages us, but Lord, may it not just fuel our speculation, but Lord, I pray that we're motivated to put our feet to the pathway of day-to-day -day discipleship. 
and to share our faith and to make disciples and to prioritize our relationships, especially with one another in the household of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.